Hello and good day. Welcome to another episode of Hillside's Conversations with the CEO podcast. My name is Maria Cristalli, and it's my privilege to serve as president and CEO of Hillside. Today, our conversation topic is going to be evidence-based practice. Evidence-based practices have been defined as the integration of the best available research with clinical expertise in the context of an individual's characteristics, their culture, and their preferences. Today, we're going to explore this topic and what evidence-based practice looks like at Hillside. And joining me today are Andrew Dillenbeck, our Director of Evidence-Based Practice, and Laura Majuli, Dr. Laura Majuli, our Director of Research and Business Intelligence. Thank you for joining me in this month's conversation. Thank you. Happy to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, how about if we talk about our philosophy as an organization when we think about the application and integration of evidence-based practices here at Hillside? Like you mentioned, when we think about evidence-based practices, thinking about how we integrate research and what research tells us is best practice into clinical practice, at Hillside, we really try to think about how we not only just utilize evidence-based practices, but make them the standard of care. So our philosophy is really about trying to make sure that we're assessing and evaluating the needs of all of our youth and families and ensuring that wherever we can, we're pulling in models that are based in research to meet those needs. I think just to add, making sure that we are integrating and leveraging those three core components or those three legs of evidence-based practice. And so um, research, like you mentioned, um, best available evidence, family and youth voice, so their preferences and their values, Um, in the interventions, treatments, and services that we provide, and then certainly staff and clinician expertise. Well, you know, when I I think of the field of human services, right, you know, we can talk about mental health, human services, child welfare services, all that are part of the service array here at Hillside. The selection of evidence-based practices seems to be a complicated process. I'm wondering if you can distill it down to some key essential steps on how we make that selection from all the practices that are available in the literature. Yes, absolutely. So here at Hillside, we've developed an evidence-based practice vetting process. And the first most critical component is really working with um, and partnering with our programs in the system of care to really understand what truly is the need? What gap are we trying to fill when we think about searching the vast array of evidence that exists out in the field? And so once we have a good understanding of what that need is, we take a look at what is the availability of research? What is the evidence? What are the best practices that might fit that need? So we think about conceptual fit from that perspective. We think about what research supports those practices in terms of the fit for the populations that, um, you know, are appropriate for that particular need. We also think about um, in our vetting process the practical fit. So will it fit in terms of our staffing resources? Will it fit in terms of 
um, you know, our assessment processes, the outcomes that we think about, all of the logistics that go into um, implementing an actual evidence-based practice. So we think about um, three things. We think about the research, we think about the conceptual fit, and we think about the practical fit. You know that the, the process is very thorough, Laura, from my understanding of how we do this organizationally. It involves multiple stakeholders to influence selection. Andrew, I wonder if you can speak to how, in our case at Hillside, how youth and families may be involved at any point in the process. Absolutely. So I think we really try to weave youth and family input into all parts of this process as much as possible. And I think where that starts, to Laura's point about identifying and clarifying the need, is we're really looking to our youth and families to help identify where the needs are and where the gaps in the services they're receiving are. And I think one of the primary ways that we do that is by routinely surveying family satisfaction and getting an understanding from the youth and families we serve what their experiences with the clinical practice they're receiving and the models they're receiving are to see what their experiences with them has been and if there's need there to be looking for additional models. And then in addition to that, once we've identified a need, it's really thinking about as we're looking at models, we're really thinking about and speaking with and involving our youth and families in the conversations to make sure that if we're looking at a model that's based on evidence, that the youth and families that we're trying to meet their needs with that model, that those youth and families are actually represented in the research that's been done to support that model, which is an, a barrier that we run into sometimes. And that we're also meeting with those youth and families to make sure that the services and models we're considering actually seem like they meet the needs that they're encountering and that we're not missing the mark. You know, that, that piece about culture and preference, when we think about alignment with a family, a young person, we serve adults in some cases for those who are listening out in the community, to be sure there is good alignment and testing in various cultures that we're working with here at Hillside and generally speaking, to see if there's any differences when we think about implementing in a, a culture that may, might be African-American and the differences of implementing a particular practice with a Caucasian group of people. Do we look at that through our implementation process? Yes, absolutely. I think it's certainly from day one part of the vetting process when we think about fit in terms of our context, in terms of our programs, in terms of the populations we serve. But we also look at that in terms of what adaptations might we need to consider as we implement our evidence-based practices across different programs with different populations. We take um, that into consideration when we do our data analysis and our evaluation of our evidence-based practices. When we think about what is our impact, um, do we see differential impact or outcomes across um, different populations that we might be serving and what's going on there? And really taking a closer look and a deep dive to see 
are there any disparities? What are we seeing um, across the diverse populations that we're serving so that we can make appropriate adaptations? And sometimes that may be going back to square one and saying, this evidence-based practice might not be the best fit and what's out there for um, this population that might be more appropriate or more aligned with cultural preferences, values, um, so on and so forth. Well, you know, that leads me to uh, another question, thinking uh, about the implementation science of how organizations implement evidence-based practices into their services. Uh, I wonder if you can speak to some of the core components that really make or break an implementation process, because Adapting and adopting evidence-based practices takes a considerable amount of resources, both people resources and financial resources. So I'd love to hear from both of you on your perspectives for a successful implementation. Like you said, Maria, I think there's lots of resources that go into successful implementation. And I think certainly we're seeing um, you know, the evidence really grow in certain areas of the research, but we're not seeing implementation grow at such a pace. And that's because implementation is so very difficult in our complex systems. And so some of the tools that we use, um, we, we borrow a lot from the implementation science field. We look at things through the stages of implementation. So structuring our implementation through exploration, preparation, implementation through to sustainability, we look at the context. So we're consistently um, and continuously assessing readiness to think about what are our barriers at the given time? What are our facilitators? um, What are some of the implementation strategies that we can leverage to overcome some of these barriers that are preventing us from moving forward with an evidence-based practice? we spend a great deal of time building the infrastructure. So kind of the background, we're asking a system to do something and we need to create the structure and the support to help them be able to do that something um, well. Uh, You know, so they need the capacity and they need the motivation to do so. And we spend a great deal of time um, helping to build that infrastructure. Andrew, what would you add to that? I think that was a really great summary. I think the one thing that I would add when I think about implementation and really where we are at currently at Hillside in working on our implementation journey around evidence-based practices is we're spending a lot of time trying to really find the balance between what we call fidelity and adaptation. And what that means is we're always striving to close fidelity to what the research says is needed for a program to follow in order for the model to be effective based on what the research says. But then we're also finding in an agency like Hillside that serves a vast array of populations in a variety of different settings, that there's also the need for adaptation to the different needs of those different programs and based on staffing and other logistical resources to be able to deliver those models realistically and efficiently as well. So we're working really strategically within our programs, within our implementation teams, to ensure 
that we're not losing core components of fidelity, and at points we'll even speak with model developers to ensure that we're really holding that core fidelity, but that we're also empowering our programs to make adaptations where needed to make the programs fit, or the models fit, both for the programs and for the youth and families they're serving. Well, you know, when I'm reflecting on what both of you are saying, the implementation of, of these practices is a team sport involving all the players that are part of our multidisciplinary treatment team, the young people, adults, and families we serve in order to be successful. And then, Andrew, to your point, the model developers that we work with each and every day through that process. So thinking about those of you that are listening that have an interest of how effective practices in science get implemented into practice in everyday work in human services, we'd like you to come join us. You could be clinicians, uh, entry-level positions in direct care. We will train you to do this work. In fact, uh, Andrew, can you talk a little bit about how we train and support Hillside staff in the delivery of evidence-based practices? Absolutely. In what I just spoke about in terms of fidelity, we really work in our models to try and ensure that sort of our initial training for staff around the content of a model is delivered by a true expert in the field. So often that means that initial training is delivered not necessarily by a hillside staff, but by an external expert that we bring in to train on the content of whatever that model is to make sure that we're getting the best training possible for our staff so that they're as equipped as possible to deliver the model. But then once that initial training has occurred, we're really looking at what is that coaching and support and ongoing training process look like in order to then adapt that initial practice to the hillside context. So that looks more internal. That's where the EBP department really steps in and provides support to programs to ensure that clinicians have the ongoing support that they need, that they're being provided specific trainings that show them how to take the information that they were initially trained on and apply it into the context of the program and the populations that they serve. And that obviously requires communication going in both directions so that programs and and clinicians as well and other staff can reach out and express when they're running into a barrier or there's a challenge in something that they need support in troubleshooting and making sure they can successfully deliver a model. Thank you both so much. I think it's pretty clear from this conversation for those of you listening in the audience that Hillside is committed to the implementation of evidence-based practices and also committed to the engagement of our workforce, the individuals we serve, and the experts in the field to be part of that process. That is so important for successful implementation as both Andrew and Laura have highlighted today. Well, I would be honored if you thought about joining our Hillside team. Hopefully some of you are intrigued with this conversation. There are many ways to support Hillside's work. You can become a foster parent to a child in need or make a donation today that helps make our programs possible. You can also join our team of committed individuals by becoming a Hillside employee. We're hiring for a wide variety of positions. 
You can find details about all of these options that I've mentioned today and how to get involved at hillside.com. Community support keeps Hillside strong, and we appreciate your partnership. Well, I'd like to thank my guest, Andrew Dillenbeck, the Director of Evidence-Based Practice, and Dr. Laura Majuli, the Director of Research and Business Intelligence at Hillside. Thank you both so much for joining me today. And until next time, thank you all for listening.